distance between Johannesburg and Lusaka is just 100 kilometers more than the distance between Cape Town and Johannesburg. It takes a truck driver 17 hours from Cape Town to Johannesburg and take the same truck driver five days from Johannesburg to Lusaka. Welcome back to the Global Startup Movement, where every week we bring you conversations, insights, and innovation highlights from emerging startup ecosystems all over the world. I'm your host, Angie Berkowitz. Thank you so much for tuning in. Today is part two of our mini-series on the future of infrastructure and emerging economies, recorded in partnership with the Impact Leaders Club. We're continuing our conversation from last week with a conversation that covers roads, ICT, and electrical infrastructure in Africa. We had a brief Q&A session at the end, which covers a few interesting topics, including both infrastructure and early stage financing. Be sure to do that now, as this is a continuation of that conversation. But now that's enough for me. Let's get right into it. So Jude is the uh, former Minister of Public Works for Liberia, and he's now here in D.C. and serving as a Senior Policy Fellow at the Center for Global Development. Um, he's also the co-host of the New Thing podcast, um, which just just like my podcast is also kind of putting forward new and innovative ideas. And they're also hyper-focused in on kind of new ideas of the development model. And so, Jude, I'll pass it off to you. Thank you, Andrew. And uh, thanks to everybody. Really great being here. Yeah, I don't have a product to pitch. No, do I have an investment to pitch? I have an idea <laughs> to pitch. And uh I figured I would start by telling a, um, a number of stories and then tell you what my idea is. So the reason, I mean, if we're going to look at the evolution of capitalism across the industrialized world, we see the go from agrarian to manufacturing, and then they become service, um, service uh, economies. Whereas what we're seeing across most of frontier markets and emerging economies is like all of those pieces exist at once, right? But the reason why an Amazon or an eBay is successful and, and other companies like those are successful across the industrialized world is because they're based of a functioning basic infrastructure spine. So we have functioning roads, we have functioning electricity, we have functioning um, um, air travel, and because it is so seamlessly woven together, it makes it easy for a service platform to be able to do that. The, part of the difficulty that the Jumias and other e-commerce platforms face in Africa and across the continent, especially Africa, sub-Saharan uh, Africa, is that the infrastructure is not in place as it would be elsewhere, and I'll come back to that. So in the 1950s, Norway wasn't as wealthy as Norway is today. Half of the roads in Norway were unpaved. And at the end of every winter, um, as the snow began to melt, half of the country was inaccessible because of the gravel roads. And it was really, really expensive every year for the Norwegian government to go back and rebuild those roads. And so in 1963, the Norwegian government commissioned the Norwegian Road Research Laboratory to come up with an alternate way of paving roads that will be cheaper than say using regular asphalt, but will not be any more expensive than the cost of maintaining a gravel road. They spent, the Norwegian engineers, uh, materials engineers, spent two years between 1963 and 1965 
in a region of Norway called the Otter Valley. And at the end of 1965, they came up with a new seal, a new way of paving roads called the uh, Otter Seal. By 1985, more than 40,000 kilometers across Norway was paved with that. But the wealthier Norway became, became, they went back and paved over that because it was not as beautiful. The reason I raised that question is that 76% of goods that are produced and freight brought into the United States are transported on roads. Across the EU is around 75%, even though in individual EU countries is even higher. For example, in the UK is over 90% of freight and goods produced in the country are transported on roads. So even though in industrialized countries, roads have become so much a part of our lived experience that it doesn't really, it doesn't occur to us how fundamental it is. And so transport infrastructure, if we're gonna build a functioning modern economy, you need a reliable and a functional transport network. And transport links are completely, um, Africa is completely underserved. So for example, only 47% of the roads on the continent, all of the roads on the continent, only 47% are paved. And of Africa's, all of Africa's paved roads, 30% is in one country, South Africa. So once you take out South Africa, you see how disjointed the continent actually is. Now I mentioned the amount of, of freight that is carried on roads in developed economies just to demonstrate how important transport links are to a country. The problem in most African countries is that at the moment, 50% of infrastructure is paid for directly by governments. And even then, the continent remains underserved. The unit cost, especially for keeping a road paved, is so expensive, it's gonna be almost impossible. So the infrastructure gap in Africa is anywhere between 70 billion to 103 billion. 40% of that infrastructure gap is transport alone, mainly road transport links. So how can we connect the continent? We're in the process of creating a single market, 54 countries and a single market. How can we build a transport infrastructure link across the continent that connects all of Africa's economies, but at a cost that is significantly lower than what we have today? And the idea I have is that there has been significant uh, increases and advances in materials engineering and machine learning to such an extent that we're able to bring to develop new materials for, for paving roads. So as I noted, the Norwegians did it in 1965. And in the, the, the years since 1965, there have been very few um, investment in new road materials. What, has, what investment has been focused on was maybe roads that can provide electricity or roads that light up when you drive on them. So most of the investment has been in the, de in the developed world. The idea here is a price challenge. When I was Minister of Public Works, I bought, bought two products that promised that um, they were road stabilizers. Simply mixing them with the soil and compacting the soil prevented the ingress of water and allowed the road to function as if it were paved. So we tested two of the products. They worked really well for like three months and then they failed. In the heavy rains, they failed. So the idea that, that I proposed was a price challenge. And the price challenge would invite materials engineers from all across the world to compete on creating a product that is useful in Africa, that uses marginal soils that are there in Africa, and that will be just as functional as if one were using asphalt to be able to pave the road. 
And then at the end of the, the, the prize competition, the top three products, of course, will, be, will re receive money so that those products can become commercialized. And because they will be significantly cheaper than the current unit cost of paving roads, we will be able to um, connect the continent. So as I was saying before, the distance between um, Johannesburg and Luz between Cape Town and Johannesburg is close to the distance between Johannesburg and Lusaka. The distance between Johannesburg and Lusaka is just 100 kilometers more than the distance between Cape Town and Johannesburg. It takes a truck driver 17 hours from Cape Town to Johannesburg and take the same truck driver five days from Johannesburg to Lusaka. Obviously a part of the problem is the quality of the border controls, but a significant part of the problem is the condition of the road, the road network. Currently, there's absolutely no overland trade between Western Africa and Southern Africa or between Western Africa and Eastern Africa. If we're gonna build a continent that is integrated, if we're gonna build a continent, and because of this lack of transport links, intra-Africa trade remains in the mid-teens, around 15%, whereas in places like Europe and Asia, is significantly higher. So if we're gonna connect African countries, then we have to be able to do it in a way that is affordable, in a way that does not saddle the country with debt, and the best means of being able to do that is to be able to take advantage of the advances that we've seen in materials engineering. So the final thing I would say on that is that the National, um, National Laboratory in the Pacific Northwest, they have created a cement product that is self-healing. And by self-healing, I mean, if you built a sidewalk or built a wall with the cement and a crack emerged in the cement, within uh, four hours, the crack will heal itself. It will repair itself. So I reached out to them about the possibility of using that cement to build bridges across Africa in places that are hard to reach, especially for maintenance. They were at the last stage. So basically they have perfected the model where the cement is self-healing at high temperatures. What they were trying to do is to be able to create a cement that is self-healing at ambient temperature. And so what would be the trigger? These are the kinds of investments. These are the kinds of, of uh, technological improvements that will allow us to be able to build Africa's world infrastructure at a fraction of the cost of what it will cost this year. I've actually pitched this to a number of foundations to be able to finance the first phase of the um, of the price challenge and still I haven't gotten anyone to bite on it yet. But if you have any questions, I'm, I'm open to answer those questions. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks, Jude. We were going to have one more speaker, Samanga, who was joining us from Zimbabwe. But since he can't join us, we can just turn that into maybe a live case study on the challenges around ICT infrastructure in Africa. I mean, at the end of the day, African countries have the most expensive internet in the world. I believe accessing the internet costs Africans between 50 to 100 times more than it would cost consumers in Europe and North America. And the average African spends up to 18% of their income on internet data packages. And when you look at like, why, why is that an issue? You have the underwater sea cables that are coming in. So you have, you know, first mile, middle, and then last mile. And then the last mile internet infrastructure is really where there's a huge um, challenge and gap in Africa. And the way that infrastructure has developed, it's overwhelmingly developed to service corporates and NGO customers 
and they charge super high prices to those customers. And so when you combine that with, you know, a lack of a reliable electrical grid, um, it just results in, in huge, huge costs because they're a lot of times using diesel generators to actually power the telecommunications equipments. And so, yeah, so it's looking like Samanga messaged me and said the power got cut. And so it looks like it's still not back up. And that's a typical, typical problem. I mean, if you look at even, even if, if you look at startups in say Nigeria, when they're raising capital and they're building out a financial model, they actually have to include the cost of running a diesel generator in their financial model because they can't just rely on the electrical grid to service their office and provide it power. And so here we go. Here we go. A live case study on this, on this challenge. And I don't know, Viola or Jude, I don't know if you guys have any, uh, any other thoughts on that. Yeah. I was just going to just quickly to add to that is that, uh, so here in the U S um, native American reservations and in the rural parts of the U S they, um, is the, the, um, Telecoms companies that are there are not the same like AT&T and T-Mobile, simply because there's these vast areas and there's no critical mass in terms of usership. And so because of that, they require significant federal subsidies for them to be able to function. So in Africa, you have the, the opposite of the problem. You have a, a good critical mass, but the spending power is so low in terms of their, their ability to purchase that um, the, the cost of simply running the, the infrastructure is so high that that cost has to be passed on to, to the consumers. So it's like, like Andrew said, most of the cell towers are being operated by, you know, probably using generators. So as we, if, as improvements happen with uh, storage technology, then solar will become really, really useful and available. But because the, the storage capacity isn't where it is, especially in terms of um, the cost, that still happens. And so because of that, for a business, especially a telco, to remain functional, it has to pass on those costs. And, and the quality of what comes out isn't always the best. The final thing I would say is that in a lot of countries, telecoms companies now have become large taxpayers. And so in, in instances of governments looking for money, they continue to tax them. They continue, they're looking to tax uh, online transactions. They're looking to tax uh, data packages, requiring the, the um, telephone companies um, to pass on in more, more often than not those costs onto the um, uh, consumer, leaving very little for them besides the basics to continue to invest in the quality of the service that has been provided. And so all of this tends to undermine and makes it really, really difficult for, um, but we've seen significant changes. As high as the costs are today, they are still a fraction of what they were, say just maybe five or 10 years ago. And so as long as those changes continue to happen, I think this, the, the um, ecosystem will continue to improve. And Viola, I saw you were about to say something about that. I think you were muted. I think it's telling that uh, apparently the Nigerian government uh, increased taxes on solar panels. I think this is definitely one of those old boy networks where let's keep the oil companies going because of the way that money floats around amongst that particular group of individuals. Otherwise, it makes absolutely no sense to me that you would not want entire countries supported by access to electricity in order for these groups to grow. I could say worse. I'm not going to. This is not the forum for it. You know how I feel. 
But until the uh, political climate begins to respect the lives of humans versus how much cash is going into people's back pockets, we'll continue to see what are utterly ridiculous decisions about energy. It's frustrating, but there you have it. Mm. Yeah, that's the reality. Um, so, Christina, should we open up to questions now? Yeah, thank you so much uh, to our speakers. And yeah, we are going to open up to questions uh, to our speakers, but also for everyone to contribute to the discussion. So it's questions plus further discussion. Hi, Chris. Um, it's, it's Leslie here in England. How are you? Hi. And hi to everybody. I'm actually originally from, from Zimbabwe. Uh, I'm from a geoinformatics background. Um, lived in Canada, stu did study in Canada and lived there for a while. Uh, but I Africa is a primary area of focus and very refreshing conference we've had this afternoon. You know, it's a complete departure from everything else I've been on and that's to be, you know, lauded. Um, I can actually identify with the energy and uh, telecoms infrastructure that's required. And Violet raised the issue of tariffs, the Nigerian government, for instance, uh, increasing the tariffs. I think it's, all, it's actually going to require a little bit of innovation and there's some things, exciting things in the market for reducing the footprint of the solar, you know, uh, power generation from solar. You know, there's some new charge controllers there on the market. It's got implications for things like um, the appliances themselves. By and large, a lot of people are being told to buy, you know, uh, equipment that works with DC for solar, for instance. And we know by and large, most people cannot afford those appliances in Africa anyway. So there's a bit of a struggle in the sense that I think the traditional you know, funding ecosystem globally is not particularly interested in you know, disruptive technologies. And that's an issue that needs to be looked at. So we need to have another completely um, different you know, uh, channel of avenue that is really interested in innovation here. Yeah. And that's, that's maybe the, the bright side to the whole, everything that's going on with, with, with the coronavirus, because at the end of the day, like in the development space, you have these huge institutions and hierarchies that like are, are, are set course in one direction. And it's very hard to actually get them to, to change course. Like even like we like to talk bad about the World Bank, but like there's a lot of operators within that hierarchy that really do want to affect change but it's just very hard to do that when, when these institutions are very, very large and, and they have a lot of inertia in a certain direction. But what I think COVID is doing is it's, it's, it's shaking everything. Every hierarchy is shaking to its core. And I think now more than ever, there's opportunities to affect serious change that in, in, in ways that wouldn't, we wouldn't be able to really push forward if, 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 this, if, if this all didn't happen. Hey guys, it's Mo from Egypt. Nice to meet you guys. Viola, amazing uh, talk. Uh, Andrew, you and I, <laughs> we've talked a lot and I enjoy our talks always. Uh, you guys talked about investment and C and, and B and C series being lacking, but I also see a lack in seed funding and what investors actually think about when you say about seed funding and what it is to be an angel investor. These terms are 
even if people are being introduced to those, they're being introduced to those with what they mean in San Francisco. And that's why when you get to see in Egypt here, for instance, and I think Andrew is uh, familiar with the ecosystem here a bit, you get to see VCs that are San Francisco, Silicon Valley-like VCs. So they're actually copying the whole system with the investor-like system and everything and getting it to a market where people don't know how this works with them, how this fits. And if you actually look towards more, if you go towards impact and going towards the communities in Africa, including Egypt as well, this kind of investment like crowdfunding and all of that, this is the kind of things that would actually work with people because now the community is thinking about, okay, I'm building a, a system or, a, or let's say a water system or a water dis dispersion system or a waste disposal factory or something that we're all going to be benefiting from to keep our economy cleaner. But also the revenues that gen are generated will be shared between all the community. This is a win-win situation. And uh, I would say a lot, like I talked about this uh, last year at the World Youth Forum here in Egypt, is how we can use crowdfunding to fund infrastructure programs on a community level, not necessarily on a government level, on a, like a national level, but just communities. So many communities, so many villages don't have access to electricity, water, and basic things that can be crowdfunded into something that would generate for them money out of their bills, elevate something, give back. They can give back to the grid of the national grid and sell electricity through that, stuff like that. And blockchain offers, of course, a, a system that can handle the transactions of how things are done decentral in a decentralized manner without relying on expensive systems that are done usually with banks. On the fintech side, Andrew, fintechs in countries like Egypt, for instance, don't exist without a bank being involved. Like, it's not like they're, uh, they're going to replace banks. It's never going to be that because legislation does not allow them to exist without a bank being in the process somehow. So that is something that you need to figure out first on a legislative level. Uh, how people can actually trust things like that. And I think when it comes to the infrastructure side, it's going to be on the infrastructure level of how can we keep data secure? Because most of countries like here in Egypt and governments around Africa are very peculiar when it comes to their data and who's going to have access to their data and how they're going to maintain that data. And when you talk about finance, when you talk about fintech, health tech, and you're now going to be talking about digital sovereignty and digital identity and sovereign identity, this is going to, all right, who's going to maintain this? There's a lot of countries here in Africa that don't still have a lot of cloud access by cloud by providers because where is the, like here, for instance, in Egypt, for fintechs, we don't have cloud. Like we have a, like a, you run your own version of the cloud and you back that up in an encrypted side and all that, but the data is maintained locally in the country. So for instance, when we were working on a project and it's not gonna introduce, I'm not gonna introduce it today, but just briefly, we're working on a project in FinTech and when we, uh, we wanna be operating across the Middle East and Africa. And when it comes to legislation, we have to open up as local entity in each governmental, like government, so that we can tackle their needs when it comes to compliance, when it comes to their regulations and licenses, for instance. That takes out how many actual startups have the means, the network to actually get that up and running.
it's no longer a startup when you're talking to that stage. It's no longer at that stage. And in some markets, in some industries, there are high barriers of entry. Like here in Egypt and FinTech, for instance, most of the big FinTech companies, when you look at them, they were backed by six of the major banks, one of the six major banks. And that's how they became to be because of the requirements there. So innovation is there, but you have to go and still knock on the door of the six major banks or specific people. And now they actually have access to a lot of, a lot of technology, but not all of this technology is being put through the market because some of them don't see the commercial or business value in that in some of the businesses. And they try to see how it's gonna fit in with, let's say in, in Egypt, 30% of the market, which is the Cairo population but not the outer population of outside Cairo, which is 70% of Egyptians, for instance. And I think you can replicate that across multiple markets in Africa. Right. That's my thank, take thank on you. It. Yeah, thank you very much, Mohamed. And uh, we had a comment or a question from uh, Amit. Yeah, hi. Um, I need to jump out, but before I do, um, in this context, um, is there a genuine opportunity for combining what Mohamed was saying right now with, um, with government involvement? And so, you know, there's a company called BuildCoin that uh, is part of our early portfolio at SVBS, and they were trying to do um, public-private infrastructure projects using tokenization. And so how do you get the, the people to be involved in, you know, micro models to express... Um, through their, you know, very, very small participation, the projects that are important to them and then tie that in with government so you can still think about dams and you can think about, you know, even the last mile challenges, whether it's with supply chain or with the internet um, and get a little bit more participation. It becomes easier to manage if it's done, um, you know, on the blockchain. And I know that, you know, Mohamed was talking about similar, similar concepts and I wonder if a hybrid model could work uh, based on your expertise. Indirectly related to what you're saying, Amit, um, Ovamba created something called Pamoja, which is um, simplified or even more complex dashboards that can be used by central banks and other policymakers to develop feed information that we help them to understand to support more policy and how it's integrating and how it's measured and how it's working. There are various countries, I know Ghana, Nigeria, for example, and a few more that are developing sandbox capabilities. Well, in reverse to that, our, my company has been trying to create a sandbox access for some of these groups that where they're saying, allow us to send you information with some sort of an interpretation as to what this means so that you can have policy support so that you don't keep on making decisions that don't engender growth. The same for what you're talking about in terms of private-public partnerships. There needs to be that push and support from the private sector that says, we're going to make it so easy for you that you can't say no, that you don't have to get too much internal uh, approval to do, neither will there be very much money on your behalf for a short period of time, almost on a freemium basis, let us send you information so that you can see what really goes on, but there needs to be some commitment and wherewithal after that for you to make 
adjustment or to voice your own uh, response and opinions to some of this. So we're trying to work with various sandboxes and we're pushing information and saying, take a look what's going on within trade or what's going on in lending. Because we're now, and we understood early on, nobody's going to, rip, uh, to replace these banks. But we also know that Africa has a very ancient use of what we're now calling crowdfunding, where groups of individuals were always pooling money together for the agriculture space. The same can be done for infrastructure. There are some places that are doing it, but being able to feed that information to lawmakers to show them in reality what's going on, I think is a very powerful tool. Again, thank you, COVID-19. I hate the fact that you're killing human beings, but you are definitely peeling the, the, the Band-Aid off all of these little areas where the resolve to, to address these issues is being removed and being pushed into urgency. We're beginning to see that banks know that we can come and help you because none of these groups we're talking about do innovation. They don't, they can't, they won't. A few banks can do a little bit of entrepreneurship, but that's a very heavy load for them to carry. Those of us in the private sector, we, our job is to make it easy for them to cross that digital divide in order to enhance the environment. I know that's a lengthy question, but the answer is yes, definitely sandboxes. Yeah, that's great. Um, I mean, it just seems like that, that might be a, a logical approach to some of the challenges. And, and I think, you know, Mohamed's point is well taken as well. You know, this is one of the challenges with Silicon Valley VC. Our historic success has made, made it seem like the only way to operate with capital is to do exactly that everywhere we go. And, and it doesn't take into account, A, how local markets work, uh, but also more importantly, it doesn't take into account just how broken our system is now because it doesn't solve for the challenges that the planet faces today. Um, and so the financial models that incentivize venture capital the way they do aren't the models that work for the planet anymore. And so trying to export that and replicate that in other ecosystems that A, already have their cultural challenges or nuances uh, and are, um, let's just say, far more vulnerable or more on the margins of what's happening with the planet today uh, means that that isn't the right solution. And we need to find more innovative ways to, to solve for these challenges. The R word hasn't been mentioned. We've used the C word, but the IR word of institutional racism, unfortunately, is embedded mm -hmm. in how the VC system works for the rest of the world. And this is a very scary upside down situation to have. Andrew himself has often said in his podcasts that the African continent will have majority of the world's young viable working population and we'll have urbanization that outstrips most of Asia at this point. If we keep on adhering to the Silicon Valley version of growth, risk and reward, which involves mm -hmm. get in, give Africa a haircut on discount to valuation, get out quickly, then we're going to create a cycle of many small broken businesses that pretend to resolve an issue, but are really just becoming the cash cow for some types of VCs. This means that we need to find a new version of funding that isn't quite equity and probably not quite debt. Somebody smarter than me is gonna figure it out. But I, for one, have turned my back on the VC market and instead looked at how can I make Ovamba uh, revenue positive and grow organically. This means I am forced to grow slowly 
in growing a company that is growing slowly with social impact, the reply back from the VC market is, you're not scaling on a hockey stick and you're not like East Africa. Why don't you have more volume? Well, these are not apples and oranges for comparison. They're not the same thing. So there's got to be a reversal of the way we inform the VC market for the realities of how Africa grows, how the startup environment works there. And it requires individuals like yourselves on this call to carry water on that conversation based on what's real. Not everyone's going to like it. And not everybody's going to be able to go back to their LPs and say, yep, we found where we can get 30% return with a really high hurdle. This does not work. It's, it's scary. It breaks the hearts of startups who really want to make a contribution back to the world. So I don't know what the answer is. I just know that on my own, I cannot deal with some of these Silicon Valley types, not dealing with them. But I do need to find a way to get on the ground African businesses themselves to stop thinking that investment is about a guarantee of capital and instead look at it as um, a way in which to, to affect growth and change on the continent as part of the ROI. And there are many other places where this is happening. But we've got to find a way to generate it from our own soil versus constantly importing these ideas from the outside with no cultural nuance whatsoever. Yeah. It's an unpopular thing to say, but unfortunately, that's the dirty truth. Well, I think Magenta brings up a good point in the chat. I think revenue-based financing can be a way forward. I think 10-year fund life cycles are very, very inappropriate for Africa. And I mean, a conversation that Jude and I had on my podcast at the end of last year was, well, if you look at the, the VC fund structure, I mean, even if they come in and they do finance and they do find a big African unicorn winner, the LPs are here in the US or in the UK. And those, those profits and those funds are being repatriated out of the country. And so VC funds are not appropriate investment vehicles for long-term local asset building. Um, so yeah, that, I mean, it's an issue. I think that creates you know, opportunity for um, uh, permanent capital in terms of investment, that model. What I do know is that because of most African countries are gonna be cut out of debt markets um, simply because of what COVID has done to the economy, which means more countries will be open to partnership with the private sector on issues they probably would not have been open to say six months ago or eight years, eight years ago. And that openness actually presents an opportunity um, to, to be able to. But the question always remains, especially on the issue of, it's not simply the lack of uh, seed capital or angel investment. It's also that, you know, the expectations are you're going to, uh, how to go out to an IPO or through acquisition. And because we don't have large scale out of IPOs or acquisitions uh, exits, it makes Africa a different place to invest in Africa, a more risky place to invest. Obviously, the kind of capital that will be required in Africa will probably be slightly more patient than the capital that works in, um, in uh, Silicon Valley. It's not to say that there aren't markets on the continent where Silicon Valley models wouldn't work, but generally, I think the kind of capital that would be most successful in Africa would have to be slightly more patient in the 10-year cycle. Agreed.